I'm Michael Barber, and this is The Accomplishment Podcast. When I interviewed Malala Yousafzai, the youngest person ever to win a Nobel Peace Prize at the age of 17, I was struck by her quite exceptional passion for education, especially girls' education. I wondered where this passion had come from. So I read her father's book, Let Her Fly. Ziadin Yousafzai is now known for being Malala's father. But what the book told me, and what I've learnt, is that Ziadin had become a bold and exceptionally courageous campaigner for education and girls' education from long before Malala was born. He even founded and led a low-cost private school in the Swat Valley, which accepted, at no cost, children whose parents couldn't afford it. He was a leader and an advocate for girls' education in his community and in his country. I wanted to know how he came to be such a passionate advocate of education for all and how he had passed that on to Malala. I asked him when his passion for education had first been awakened. Long before Malala was born, I was like an education activist. I was a teacher. And I was very passionate. I'm still very passionate about education. And I'm very committed to the cause of education. And the reason is my own life story. As I grew up uh, in a small village in the northwest of uh, Pakistan, where education was not a norm for girls. And even it was not uh, something very common for the boys as well. Uh, Many poor families, uh, children, like boys also, had not this opportunity to go to schools because they had to, even in their teenage, they had to go out to the big cities in Pakistan to earn livelihood for their families. So I was very lucky that I was born in a family which was a lower middle class family. And I could see under the same roof that five sisters, two brothers, my elder brother and myself, we were sent to school because there were boys schools. And the five girls did not go to school. There were two reasons. Number one, there was hardly any school for girls in the whole region. So it was not a social norm to send a girl to school. Like it was an agreed upon a social thing that, oh, a girl should stay at home. And after her teen, like after 12 years or 13 years, she's supposed to to stay at home and do home chores and uh, take care of the siblings and helping her mother. That was all about her life. And within teenage, she was supposed to be engaged and then married. And that was the story of all my five sisters. So they got married as early as possible. Some parents, just one or two in the whole community, that they sent their girls to school for a few days with boys, or they got private tuition. But one or two only. So one thing that strengthened my belief in education as I was growing up was education, my life different from my sisters because I had that opportunity and my sisters did not have. But also, I went through some discriminations in my early childhood. I was a bit dark in color, so I was not uh, like favorite uh, for some teachers and uh, other people in the community. I thought that I am not handsome, a kind of inferiority complex as well. And 
you know, Michael, when I talk, I stutter. So stuttering yeah. also made a problem for me, like some boys uh, mimicked me. It was kind of a, a bully as well. They bullied me for my stuttering. But in school, I found some teachers that they were very much about the talent of the students. They changed my thinking. They changed my whole mindset about being valued and appreciated. Education changed my life, to be honest. Without education myself, I, I feel like, oh, it would have been very different yes. thing for me at all. Like, yeah. You mentioned that it was in northwest Pakistan. It was the Swat Valley um, and uh, in your book, you describe standing, looking at the river and thinking the world is so beautiful. Uh, just tell people a little bit about the valley you were brought up in. It's um, paradise on earth. When Queen Elizabeth II, uh, may God rest her soul in peace, when she went to Swat Valley and she was so impressed and fascinated by the beauty, by the natural beauty of the Swat Valley that she said that it's a Switzerland of the East. So that was a big compliment from the Queen uh, for us. So Swat Valley, it's, um, it's all lush green fields, tall mountains, uh, rivers, springs, everything that is beautiful and that nature can give, we have been given in the Swat. Valley. Yes. We don't have oceans and seas. Apart from that, we have everything, everything. Yes. So I grew up in that Swat Valley, really. It yeah. sounds absolutely lovely. And it's a Pashtun culture that you were brought up in, uh, still uh, steeped in. And uh, Pashtun culture crosses the border of Afghanistan and northwest frontier of Pakistan. That culture has been a very big influence on your life. So our Pashtun cultures has some pros and cons, some great things that we are so proud of, but there are things we need to change. So the strength of our community and our ethnicity is that uh, hospitality, we love to serve people at our homes and anywhere we find people. So we love to spend money on food for others as well, not only for yes. us. So it's a very cultural thing. Hospitality is one thing. Second, I mean, I should mention courage. Uh, yes. And uh, to be bold and to be brave. Bravery, like if you find your brother, your friend, your village fellows in trouble, uh, in difficulty, if whether it is a natural catastrophe or something, human made things. So you're supposed to stand by and to stand with uh, the people who suffer. So that is the other strength of our community. There are so many other things as well, but uh, the dark side are the uh, poor and weak side, which uh, we need to address and which needs to be ended uh, because we are living in 21st century and uh, we need to change. One of the things which I utterly disliked and as I grew up, I realized that this is keeping half of the population paralyzed. It snatches away from women and girls uh, their potential yes. to build their own lives and also to contribute to their community uh, was kind of gender discrimination. And you see, the worst form of that thing is now in Afghanistan, like institutionally and as a garment, they have been all girls from schools, all women are going to work, all women from going to public places. So 
that has a cultural orientation as well. It, though it's changing, uh, Taliban is misusing that cultural stuff. But there is something culturally as well that women's segregation is one of the top priority of our ethnicity and community. Women and men's mingling are any opportunity where they come together that is uh, abhorred. But not only that uh, segregation, but also the discrimination. My five sisters did not go to school. And my father... And my mother's dream for me were so many dreams for this one boy. Like they yes. wanted to make me everything. Wanted to make me doctor and financial person, to be very rich, to be everything. They had many dreams for one boy, but they had only one dream for the five sisters to get them married as early as possible. And those were not just my parents. Every parent in that community had the same attitude and behavior and mindset about their girls. You very courageously, but also very um, ambitiously, created a school which she became the head teacher of. Well, I'm still talking about before Malala was born and then in her very young years. You, you built this school. That's an amazing achievement. Basically, I believed in education. The most precious thing in my life because it changed my life. It made me the kind of person that I am. And I am so grateful that I'm so proud that the kind of person that I am. I pray to God that I stay the same for my last breath. I'm sure you will. <laughs> yeah. So, so, so the most important thing that education gave me were the values. Education changed my inner being. It made my inner being beautiful. And it gave me the values of uh, uh, love, respect, empathy, believing in equality, and respect for everyone indifferent to their caste, color, and creed. So this was something that I wanted, like... You know, Michael, more than me, like human community, human civilizations from centuries, they are working how to make this world a better place. People, uh, great scholars and uh, intellectuals uh, and ec economists, they come with different theories like uh, communism, socialism and Islamism and capitalism, etc., etc., social welfare states. So for me, like what I found in education that how it changes individuals, how it transforms communities was amazing. So that was the reason that I was very committed and I was very passionate and I was a strong believer that one thing that I can use that can change my community, that can change my people was education and particularly girls' education. So the passion is amazing and really inspiring, Ziodin. But there's lots of people all over the planet who have a passion for something, but they find it hard to turn it into reality. You took that passion and then you created a school and you educated girls and boys to a very high standard. You had a community supporting you. There must have been a lot of hard work, even with the bricks and the mortar and the attracting teachers and all of that. You, you built a school. That's an amazing thing. I tell people that sometimes when we have dream or we have some passion for something, if we really mean it, then uh, situations and people around you, uh, circumstances give you an opportunity. It depends on individuals, how they build on it. So opening a school, it was not something special in Swat Valley because there were other schools as well. Uh, like my school was not first ever school in the Swat Valley. What was different in my school was the way I ran that school. It was not just a school that where girls were able to learn mathematics in science subjects and languages. It was a school 
which gave them the values that they should believe in themselves, they should believe in equality, and they should speak up with respect. And they could be disobedient with respect to their parents even if they are uh, given their hand without their permission, if they are uh, going to be married very early. So I encourage them to be themselves. My education to them was that you are not things, you are beings, you are human beings. Nobody has a right to take charge of your life, even your parents. They should be mindful and they should respect your individuality and your being a human being. I used to call mothers and fathers and we had these gatherings and I wanted to hear from them and they and to share my views with them that how girls' rights and how girls' freedom and liberty should be respected. And I had a lot of trials and tribulations. I, I will mention one story. When I took uh, girls from school, some 80 to 100 girls to a picnic spot, a beautiful place, uh, 14, 15 miles uh, uh, from our school. And we had that uh, beautiful day and the girls played with water and they just walked in the nature. And next day, I saw there was a huge propaganda against me and my school and unknown people spread their posters in the community that uh, this guy is Yaudin, he runs an NGO and he is doing this evil thing. He's taking girls out of the school, out of homes, into the public places and uh, you don't know what do they do there. He wanted to create a conspiracy theory around that. When I saw those posters, I was shocked. And uh, when I went to school that morning, some of the girls were very uncomfortable and they were very scared. And then I gathered all the girls in morning as as assembly and I asked them uh, questions because Mullah Fazlullah was at that time, he was still there. And I asked them that you went to that place, it's called Marghazar, a beautiful place. Did you do anything wrong? And they said, no, sir, we didn't do anything wrong. And I said, so why should you be scared then? I told them that, look, you are human beings like boys and men. And as the boys and men have a right to go out into the public place, to enjoy these beautiful forests and uh, rivers and uh, springs and uh, like the landscape, God has given you the eyes, all those five senses and all those things which a man and boy has. So why should you be stopped from that? It's your right. And no power on earth can stop you from that right. So I encourage them, like they should not be scared uh, for being out. So just taking girls out was a big issue for the people who were the followers of Taliban or something, uh, or who were Taliban maybe actually. You mentioned your wife, Tua Pekai. She wasn't as much of a public figure as you, but she's been a very strong supporter of the family and the way you brought up your children. She was like a, a rock on which the whole family was founded. Tua Pekai is the strongest girl in a, in I have ever met in my life. And during Taliban time, honestly, in our culture, when a husband is discouraged by wife and she says, oh, if you do this, this will happen. If you do this, don't do it. Our family will be in trouble. Our family will be targeted. But Torpekai was different. Right. When I started speaking to media and I joined all those organizations who were anti-Talibanization and who were working for peace and education, Torpekai encouraged me every day. And I remember one of her famous lines that one day she told me that I wish I could do all this that you are doing. But my training is that kind of training that I go out in the community and start speaking. But if you and Malala can speak, please speak up. 
if you don't speak, who will speak? That was such a big power. And she believed in the righteousness and truth she believed. And like me, she also believed that what Taliban are doing is false. And that falsehood has to end one day. You've been very passionate yourself. And then you've talked uh, very passionately about your wife's commitment to this mission. Then you had a daughter, Malala, and two sons. And you brought them up in a context with those beliefs. So Malala, from a very young age, this was the perspective she understood from the family. Yes, of course. Our children learn what we do, not what we teach most often. So the way I treated my wife and she treated me, that was a role model treatment for our three kids. I didn't need to write on walls that women and men are equal or boys and girls are equal and respect girls and blah, blah. No, my boys knew, not only my boys, the whole community knew how important Malala is. I remember one day my brother came from Shangla to Swat and Malala was a newborn girl and he came and he went. I asked my wife, did my brother see Malala? And she said, no, he hasn't asked. I was so disappointed. I was so angry that for three, four days, I was like uh, very low and down. I said, oh, how dared he? He should have asked about Malala. He should have taken her in uh, his lap and lulled her and loved her. Anyway, so Malala was like touchstone for me. <laughs> right. And in your, in your book, you say how right from her birth, you thought she was something special. Quite young, she was beginning to campaign with you for girls' education, as well as being a very good assiduous student. Yeah. So I have rarely seen such a committed student in my life. Right. Like the way she started her school, she kept uh, the her diaries and her examination papers and her progress reports all in one file. I think this was something really I didn't teach her. Sometimes we discuss it that why like she was like this from the right. very beginning. And I remember the very morning when she was born when I was told that a baby girl has come and when I went to my wife's bed and I saw this young little newborn baby with open eyes and eyes shining like stars and I fell in love and my heart filled with, with something which I can't explain, filled with a joy, with a happiness which I had never seen before. So, like, as I was waiting for this girl, and she came in my life, and I had a name for her before she was born, the Malala of Mevand. Yes. I remember that in my whole life, I have hardly seen women and girls being known by their own name or mentioned by their own name. When I took my mother to the doctor, she was mother of Ziauddin. If my father took her, she became wife of Ruhul Amin. So... Even in the gravestones, if you go right now and you just visit any graveyard in Pushtunkhwa, even in the whole Pakistan, you will see wife of Mr. So-and-so, daughter of Mr. So-and-so, mother of Mr. So-and-so. Women's names are not inscribed, engraved on the gravestones. So that is something that when you refuse the very identity of a person, that is her name. What I mean that right from the day one, I was... A feminist father. Yes. Like I tell people that when my cousin brought me the family tree 
And it was a coincidence that just few weeks after he brought the family tree and he was distributing to all family people, maybe we are, at that time, we might be three, four hundred people. So when he presented me my copy, I had Malala only at that time. And I drew a line uh, from my name and wrote Malala. And he had this grimace on his face. Like, look at this crazy man. He is entering a girl's name on a family tree. But I meant it. So I tell people that I was feminist long before I knew the word feminism, honestly. I believe yeah. that. It's a, it's a wonderful story. And, and I want to take you back to your own uh, time as a head teacher and your standing up for the values you've described with such passion. Rather insidiously, over a two-year period, the Taliban take over your area. And eventually they close your school down and you had to leave for a little while. Can you describe how difficult that was? It was like... Uh, a very scary dream, a frightening dream. Like, just think that your daughter is in school and there were some more than 50,000 other girls in the Swat Valley. They were studying in their schools. The boys go to their schools. And meanwhile, some bad guys come in the name of Islam. They spread this message against uh, girls' education in particular and modern education in general. And some people voluntarily girls left schools, which was very frightening. And for a person like me, who believed in education for himself, for his daughters, for the girls of community, and for everything, like that was my revolution platform. When that was taken, they pulled the rug uh, from under my feet. It was unacceptable for me, unacceptable for me, because ban, ban on education for me meant ban on girls' future, ban on girls' dreams. And that was the reason that I was a teacher in my community and I was involved in other uh, good stuff for democracy, environment. But when Taliban started speaking against girls' education and when they banned girls' education, I had to change my role just from a teacher to an education campaigner, to a fighter for education, because that was important. And in our family, like father, like daughter, Malala also uh, was kind of inspired and she also started her campaign as well. Because you were a significant figure in your region and your community in that time, the Taliban were executing some people in your community. How did you think about that? Or did, did you just think, this is so important, if necessary, I'll risk my life for it? At the time of oppression, not only Taliban's oppression, any other oppression which we have seen in the human history or we are seeing right now, the social norm becomes to flee away, to escape for your life, and to just protect yourself. That is the general social behavior, yes. and which is a human behavior that should be accepted. Everyone might not be or can't be a fighter. But in our DNA, it was different, to be honest. For me, it was scary to fight against Talibanization. It was scary to speak against their atrocities and their ban on girls' education, but it was more scary not to speak. And I thought that life is beautiful. Life is precious. Life is given once in life, okay? But sometime when you feel that at the cost of your life, you earn the dignity of life for everyone, then you say, oh, it's worth it. But it's also a human feeling to respect and admire and pay tribute to people such as yourself who were willing to take on 
this challenge, even at risk to themselves and their family. And you and Malala were both campaigning for education through that time and then through the next few years. Then the terrible shooting of Malala occurred. She doesn't remember it, but you do. Can you just talk about how you possibly came through that terrible trauma, you and Tuopekai? It must have been the most awful thing a parent can imagine. Malala and I, we both were campaigners for education and we fought for the right of education for girls. But I also want to pay tribute to all those brave people of Swat who have laid down their lives for the cause of peace. And I could see uh, that uh, like people were assassinated, they were killed in target killing. The people who spoke, they were named on the FM radio and next day they were finished. Uh, I remember that how I had to leave my home in January 2009 and stay at night with my at my friend's home because I thought that if Taliban come and they kill me in front of my family, I will be done. But the difficult part of this scene was that what my children will be thinking for their whole life, the trauma that they will have, they won't be able to come out of it. So for that reason, I had to leave my home and spend nights with at my friend's home. And this was not just my life. This was the life of so many freedom fighters at that time. So my tribute to all of them. And right now, even right now, there are great people and Pashtunkhwa, Pakistan, who are standing against Talibanization. We still have target killing in Pashtunkhwa, and the Taliban are still attacking our security forces. Our opinion leaders and our police, brave people are there who are there to pr protect uh, and defend our freedom and our human rights. I'm coming to uh, your question that how traumatic it was uh, for Torpeke and myself when all this happened. Honestly, retrospection is also very traumatic. Thinking of that day when Malala and I, we had our breakfast together and as usual, she left her egg half eaten in the plate and she rushed to school. That day was until 12 p.m. It was like all other days. But at 12 p.m. while I was uh, in press club, and I was about to speak uh, to a big gathering of teachers. Meanwhile, my friend received an, a telephonic call uh, from one of our school staff members that the school when has been at attacked. Then my friend whispered in my ear because I switched off my phone because I was about to go in to speak. I went to the podium because I didn't know at that stage that what happened, but the bus has been fired. And I spoke for a while, very shortly, my there was sweat on my forehead and I said goodbye to the people. And on the way, when we rushed to the hospital, a friend called me on phone and told me that Malala and two other girls have been shot. But uh, uh, they are still like uh, fine and they have been taken to the hospital. When I reached to the hospital, I remember I stood beside Malala and she had this injury on the left side above her eye. And I kissed her. I said few things to her, you're my beautiful daughter, you're my brave daughter, things like that. Then I just came out from that room and uh, it was so traumatic that uh, I really, I forgot how to cry. Like I didn't cry. And uh, I was like, when the computer hangs, like yes. it was a blank slate. I I, I, yes. I couldn't think what, what has happened because Malala was not just my daughter. She was uh, my comrade. In the aftermath of that, various people in 
various hospitals helped you. And there was a British woman visiting doctor who you call Dr. Fiona in your book, who, after you'd been to the army hospital, helped you and your family move to Birmingham, make sure Malala got the best possible care. And then you were suddenly, you've been living in what you call paradise, the Swat Valley, and now you're in downtown Birmingham in the UK, and it's grey, and there's bricks and roads and traffic and no mountains, and your daughter is in hospital recovering. That must have been the most traumatic, leaving aside the trauma of, of Malala's injuries, that just the, the shift from there to Birmingham. It was very traumatic and it was very unusual, unexpected. That day when Malala was uh, coming from school to home and she was attacked on the way, she never went back to her home for many years. So she left home that day and I left home that morning. I didn't go back and we had to come to Peshawar. Luckily, she was treated by uh, two Pakistani doctors, an army doctor and a civilian doctor, and they removed at midnight the part of the skull from her uh, head and uh, to uh, leave a space uh, for brain to swell. Um, and that was very helpful. So that life-saving surgery was done in Peshawar. Uh, that saved her life. Luckily, it was a coincidence that Dr. Fiona Renard, which you mentioned, and Fiona came to Peshawar uh, from Islamabad, and I remember very well that it was uh, next day after Malala's surgery and all her face was swollen, swollen, and her head became so big. I could see those uh, blue spots on her cheeks because of the too much pressure on her head and face. She was not responding. Uh, we didn't know what will happen in the next uh, one hour or not one hour, like next one minute, five minutes, what will happen. And I asked one of the uh, medical uh, staff uh, in the ICU that uh, is there any hope that Malala will survive? And she told me that uh, uh, pray to God. <coughs> and it <laughs> sorry. It's difficult. These are difficult things to talk about. Um, don't be apologetic. <laughs> no, it's fine. <coughs> so, uh, and this rather than making me more hopeful, it might be more disappointed. Yes. Um, and I just um, crippled down like to the wall. And meanwhile, I saw Dr. Fiona. So like a crazy man, I immediately asked her to, uh, the doctor, thank you so much for coming. And what do you think? Is there any hope that she will survive? And she told me something that I carry still to my memory. She told me. So if there had been no hope, I wouldn't have been here. These were her, her words, like she had really a great hope. And then she said that if she survives, it will not be a surprise for me. If she dies, that will be a surprise for me because the way her surgery has been done is amazing. These doctors in Pakistan have saved her life. And let's see that we should do the proper intensive care, post-trauma, post-surgery. Yeah. So in Peshawar, she had some problems with her major parts of the body, and then they realized that she should be shifted to Islamabad. 
and Dr. Fiona was able, she took the risk because the doctors in Peshawar said that it will be risky for her to airlift her and to uh, fly her to Islamabad. But Dr. Fiona told, oh, we do it a lot in UK. Don't worry. It's my responsibility. She said that she was very scared. <laughs> but she said, she said, oh, no, no, don't worry. I remember that on the way in the helicopter, she was struggling with the gas uh, cylinders and stuff with the oxygen and everything. And successfully, she was brought to Islamabad. And then you see they were able to stabilize her in the next three, four days uh, because she got a fantastic post-intensive care. Uh, after that, she was moved to the UK. And in UK, in Queen Elizabeth Hospital, thank you to the doctors here, because Malala's life was saved in Pakistan. But the, sh the way she was rehabilitated was not possible there. So many surgeries were done then in the UK to rehabilitate her to restore her hearing in the left ear. She has cochlear implant now, and they were able to stitch back the nerve, the facial nerve in a different way, in a very good way. She got, I think, 95 to 96% moment back in her left side face, uh, which was amazing. Like the doctors were very impressed. The way Malala uh, was rehabilitating and restoring and the re resilience that she showed in the hospital, uh, like they were all very much impressed. They said that it was a miracle that uh, she survived. Uh, when a doctor says something miracle, that is really... Yes. Uh, yeah, yeah. Really amazing. So she made an amazing recovery, it drew on her own resilience, your family's resilience. And then she wins the Nobel Peace Prize. How was it to be the father of a Nobel Peace Prize winner on your subject, your theme, the theme that your whole life had been defined around? I was so happy. I mean, sometimes it's so difficult that you can't find words to express your happiness or your gratitude for some things in life. One thing that really disturbed me as a father, that was that before the Nobel, when Malala was introduced on different platforms, I just saw this line again and again, the girl who was shot by the Taliban. Malala, the girl who was shot by the Taliban. Malala, the girl who was shot by the Taliban. It was something that um, was very traumatic to see. Also, Malala herself did not like that. And I remember that before speaking to UN, on her 16th birthday in 2013, before the Nobel, she spoke to a gathering in New York that I don't want to be known by, by a girl who was shot. I want to be known as a girl who fought, who fought for her right to an education. And when this new introduction came to her life, a few months later, I went to Canada and uh, I met my cousin in Canada and his young boy, maybe seven, eight years old. And I, I asked him, do you know M M Malala? Who is she? And he told me, yes, I know her. She's the girl who got the Nobel Peace Prize. And I had tears in my eyes. I said, oh, yes. Yes. That's brilliant. That's brilliant. Yes. Yeah, no, it's, yeah. It's so, that's so lovely to have the positive recognized. Uh, yeah. and, and obviously, since then, she has set up the Malala Fund. And you two are now campaigning globally for what you used to campaign for in your own village, in your own region, before all of the, the trauma. At one level, you have an amazing opportunity and you've got these objectives to get all girls across the world into school. You personally, I see it all the time on Twitter, are campaigning right now for 
the damage being done to girls and women in Afghanistan, you're still campaigning for the same things you've always believed in. How's that going? And do you feel optimistic that we will get this job done on girls' education? Times come when things go so bad that you get disappointed. Our spirit goes a bit down because what we see in Afghanistan is unacceptable. Yes. Unacceptable in Islam, unacceptable in humanity, unacceptable in Pashtun and Afghan culture, because Afghanistan is centuries-old country. During the King Aman Nandullah Khan in 1921, he started primary school for girls, and he sent girls to other countries for higher education. It's just a Taliban thing. Ban on girls' education is neither no. Islam nor humanity nor Pashtun wali or Afghan culture. So. And Afghanistan is the only country on this planet that Taliban have literally banned all girls from schools except until grade five or six. I don't know when they will ban them as well. So around 2.5 million girls. It's a big population. Uh, yes. They have been barred from getting an education, which is their human right, Islamic right. Every In every way, it's unacceptable. It is stressful. But uh, I believe in one thing. I believe in nature as well. When human beings, they try to do things against nature, against human nature, they can't continue it for long. So my belief is, my wife's belief is that she's also a strong believer that it's false. What they are doing, it's unnatural as well. How yes. can you stop women and girls from life? Because stopping a girl from school is stopping her from life. So... My only hope is the basic principle of nature and the truth that will prevail one day. It's going to be a big loss for Afghanistan. It's a, a data by World Bank and the fund uh, that if we send all girls all over the world and they complete their secondary education, we add up to $30 million to the world yes. economy. So it's a big loss for Afghanistan, for its economy, for its peace, for its everything, for its uh, social fabric, for its um, for its communities. Uh, for its e economy, everything. I, I wish Taliban have some sense and some sanity and they understand that why they have become the enemies of themselves. We have to knock at the door of the conscience of the global community and even of Taliban if they have some still there. Your optimism that in the end, the cause of good will overcome for girls and for women around the world I can hardly remember a conversation that has moved me so much. So I, I'm deeply grateful that you joined me for this hour. Uh, you are a, an exemplar to all of us. And I have no doubt that you will continue to lead around the world on this issue that's been driving you from when you were a boy to now and for the rest of what I hope will be your lo long life. And I know Malala uh, will be doing the same. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you so much for having me here. It is a great honor. The dream, Malala's dream, my dream, Malala Fund's dream, and people like you, we all dream that every girl on this planet should have a right to an education, quality education, and she should learn and she should lead. She should be equal human being like men. This will make our world more beautiful, more prosperous, more fair, and more peaceful. Thank you. Yes, thank you. I agree. Thank you for listening to the Accomplishment Podcast and my thanks 
to special guest Ziadin Yousafzai. You can also get in touch with me on Twitter at MichaelBarber9. There's a book that accompanies this podcast, Accomplishment, How to Achieve Ambitious and Challenging Things, published by Penguin. Also, don't forget to review the Accomplishment podcast and subscribe so you don't miss the great game changers telling their stories on how to get things done. This podcast is produced by Siobhan O'Connell, thanks to her and to the rest of the team. Thank you.